0: Hi. You all doing good? Happy Independence Day weekend to you. Hope you've had a festive and celebratory Independence Day weekend. You didn't stay up too late the other night, did you? Yeah. Last night, everybody was like dead. It was like comatose in here. And uh, you might think that like on a holiday weekend, maybe the message should be a little lighter and uh, maybe just a little just kind of bouncing along. But it's just not the case. And so I'm just going to tell you we're going to go deep and uh, like buckle in. All right. We're in this series, this is week number two of a series that we call She's a Stewardess, which is a crazy little sermon series title, and I'll unpack what that means for you in just a few minutes, and let's just dig in with our big idea, and it starts like this. God's cultural mandate to tend and watch over the planet is for the purpose of guiding, aiding, and increasing the earth's productivity, as well as guarding it against degradation, which would be the result of neglect. So I told you to buckle in, all right, because we're going into all of that, and uh, we should just pray to start things, right? Seems appropriate. God, thank you so much for meeting with us here today, and God, today is really about you, though as a residual effect, we are going to be ministered to by you, and that's a privilege for us. I pray that today and everything about today would be honoring, that every word that I speak would be pleasing and blessing to you, God, and that in the process that this would change and shape us as we think about your planet, as we think about your creation, as we think about our role that you've invited us into, God. We want to be great stewardesses of your planet. Help us do that, please. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray this, and the church said... Amen. Just by way of review of last weekend if you weren't here it's worth picking up the CD in my opinion of course that would be my opinion right we talked last weekend about how God put the amago day which means the image of God God put his image inside of us and inside of humanity alone right God didn't put his image into plants and trees and animals and rocks. He put his image into us and into us alone for the purpose of us mirroring the very nature and the very essence of God to the entire creation. That's what we're here for. That's what our lives are to be all about, mirroring the very nature and the very essence of God himself to the rest of creation. If you remember, we drove the car right up to the edge of the cliff and stopped on Genesis 1, to 28, where God said these words. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over, get that word, reign. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry Along the ground. So see, God made humanity to mirror the very nature and essence of God, the Creator, as we reign, fill in that blank if you would, over His creation. As we reign over His creation. And Psalm 8, 5 to 8, echoes that reign mandate. Yet you made them, the text says, only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. That's us, the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims the ocean currents. And that word rain, sea, we often think about it in kingly terms, right? Right? Kings and queens reign over. But when it comes to the Hebrew verbiage in Genesis 1 26 to 28, it means that we're rather to manage or govern an entity with authority. And that authority, we didn't manufacture it, it doesn't just come to us naturally. That authority is imparted to us by God Himself. We are then to manage or govern an entity in Genesis 1 terms, the planet Earth, with authority, authority on loan from God himself. See, my friend and professor, a guy named Tony Campolo, you might have heard of him, he wrote about the environment some years ago, these words, stinging words. The world is becoming dirty and ugly, he says, and it's time to do something about it. The air is being turned into smog, the rivers are polluted, toxic chemicals fill the soil, the oceans have become garbage dumps and trash is piling up on the edges of our cities. Oil spills pollute our beaches and chemical rain and expanding industry destroy our rainforests, Brother Tony writes. Now, I haven't read his whole book, but it's my guess that Tony would go on to blame the Enlightenment for giving us, humankind, permission to view the natural world as just sitting out there waiting for us to use it and abuse it in whatever way that we feel will best serve humanity, ourselves. Similar statements could very likely be found in just about any book out there that addresses any problem related to the environment, right? Some of you may have read some of those books. Another target beyond the enlightenment for the environmental mess that we're in is Christian thinking. Christian thinking that says, well, the end of the world is just any moment around the corner. The end of the world is absolutely imminent, so we do not have any responsibility whatsoever to think long-term about the environment. Just use it all up because Jesus is coming back at any moment. Some even go so far as to blame the Bible itself as being the root cause of all of our environmental problems. Much blame gets assigned to this Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28 text. One author said this, We need go no further than the end of the opening chapter of the Bible itself to find the statement that is so often taken to lie at the root of human arrogance and indifference toward the world of nature and which has led many people to see Christianity as being responsible for a current environmental crisis. The message of this well-known verse seems to be clear. Man is Lord of all he surveys, given by God to do the right, whatever he likes, with the rest of creation, which is there simply to satisfy his wants and to be used for his enjoyment. Stinging a bit, isn't it? One man actually paraphrases Genesis 1, to 28, sort of uses more balanced words. Have a lot of children and populate the earth, he says. Harness its potential and use its resources for your benefit. As one can see, the verb does not mean ruin or destroy when speaking of the verb reign, nor does it suggest anything approaching worship, treat like fragile China, or be at one with, he says. The context of rulership, Militates against the abuse of the earth, but it also prohibits putting the earth on par with humankind Humanity after all he says is God's designated king over the created order And then a guy named Thomas Durr. He sums up what's called Christian theisms view on the environment on planet earth He says Christian theism places human beings at the apex of nature By design of the ultimate giver of life, made, as we say, in the image of God, we give ourselves license to claim that our interest as a species takes precedence over those of the rest of the creation. Stewardship of the creation means mainly that we should manage it so that it sustains us indefinitely. Nature is made for us as we are made for God. Three different samplings of environmental writing. And while there is much validity to all of those thoughts, it seems that the Bible, it seems that the text directs us to a more Godward view than those rather human views of the cosmos. After all, God created the creation for himself. Get that. God created the creation for himself, not for us. Even though we've been given a position of status and privilege in this world, God created the creation for himself. A more Godward view, then, directs that our understanding and our implementation of the word reign must be seen as a function of stewardessing, not ownership. And write that word down. It is a real word, starting today. (laughs) Stewardessing is a word. Because, see, the planet is not strictly ours to do with as we choose and what we will and what we want, but rather has been put under our authority, authority that's been loaned to us by God to steward us and manage for its owner, God. That means that our management of planet Earth is not, then, with our own benefit in mind, but it's with the mentality that this is God's world. It is His It's a lot like the house sitter concept. It's a lot like the house sitter concept. How many of you by show of hands when you go away for an extended period of time have a house sitter come into your home and stay? Yeah, that's not very many of you. Uh, Robbers take note who does not have house sitters. Over. Some of you do, or at least you're familiar with the concept. You might have plants or animals, dogs or cats, though a cat isn't worth having a house sitter for, in my opinion. And while you're away on vacation, you need someone, just my opinion, just for what it's worth, you need someone who will care for the living things and who will watch over your house. And while they're there, you grant the house sitter free reign of your house, don't you? Please, you say, eat the food in the refrigerator. Please use the food that's in the pantry. Please sit in the hot tub. Please watch the satellite TV and so. And while they're doing all of that, you who have hired the house sitter get the benefit of them getting the mail, keeping an eye on the place, making it look lived in while you're away. Now, whose house is it? Yes, it's still yours. One person said yours. Smart kid, by the way. (laughs) It's still your house, right? But you've given the house sitter the right of management and you've permitted them to make full use of all of the fringe benefits of your home. Now let's say you hire a house sitter, you've been away on vacation for an extended period and you get home and you find that your house sitter was not a very good house sitter and let all the food in the house rot. And so it is a stinking mess of rotten bananas and rotten milk in the refrigerator and so on. How would you feel about that? You'd be quite disappointed. You'd be like, wow, what kind of a house sitter is this? I'm finding a different one next time, right? And what if you went a step further? What if you found that your house sitter had raucous parties while you were away? Wrecking the things in your house. Staining the carpet. Leaving your animals and plants dead. Dead. How would you feel when you got home about that? You'd be really bummed, wouldn't you? Now you follow that out and do our stewardship, our stewardessing of the creation. The Bible then does not give us as humanity any support for the self-indulgent raping of the planet Earth. Any attempt for us to do so is no different from the crusaders, the inquisitioners, the Nazis, the white supremacists who make inappropriate use of the Bible to justify rather anti-biblical purposes and agendas, see. Now the text uses the word reign. It's humanity's primary role in the creation. But we are not the kings of the creation. God is the king of the creation. We're merely the stewardesses of it. Now, we've elected to call this series, She's a Stewardess. A bit weird, I know. And that's because the church, you and I, the church are often referred to in the text as being the bride of Christ, aren't we? Which is to say that the church then is a she, right? Now the church, get this, the church is not a building, the church is not a place, the church is not an event, the church is a people, the church is us, a people who have been given a purpose by God himself, and in the case of the environment, the church, that's us, remember, we're to come at our role in the environment, in creation, From the posture of being a manager. From the posture of being a steward. Allah, she is a stewardess. She, the church, is a stewardess. Thus the title for this series was born out of that reality. And it's from this stewardessing posture. It leads us to think about ourselves. It leads us to think about all of humanity. Watch this. As priests in the cosmos rather than kings over it priests in the cosmos rather than kings over it let me make this case for you from the text Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 if you've got a bible you could turn there we're going to hang out here for a bit it speaks to this very subject Genesis 2:15 the lord god placed the man that's adam in the garden of eden to tend and watch over it crucial words To tend and watch over it. And the way those words tend and watch over are used here in Genesis chapter 2 is in the terms of carrying out a responsibility while we live here in God's world. The role of Adam is clearly identified. To tend and watch over the Garden of Eden. But when you look at the Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament, there is some interesting nuance to the Hebrew When you look at the root words from which we translate the words tend and watch over, both of those words from which we translate tend and watch over are most frequently used in other places in the Bible in the discussion, watch this, of human service to God. Human service to God, not descriptions of agricultural tasks, okay? Therefore, it seems that God has classed the Garden of Eden as sacred space, see, and that Adam, the very first human, was given tasks that are of a very priestly nature. Adam was thus charged with caring for sacred space on behalf of God himself. Ancient Near Eastern thinking considered that providing care for sacred space was one of the ways that humankind participated in upholding creation. By keeping order, they thought, chaos was held at bay. Ancient Near Eastern thought went something like this. This creation, they thought, which had been achieved at the very inception of time, must be kept up and it must be maintained. The most essential task in ancient Near Eastern thought of life on earth was to ensure that the fabric of the universe was maintained and that it was sustained. There were forces of chaos, they thought, which existed before the creation of the world that through the act of creation had been cast to the outer edges of the world, but they were nevertheless continuing to threaten to re-encroach into the world. Therefore, the possibility existed in their thinking that such actions and such catastrophe could only be averted through the actions of God and humanity working together to maintain order. See, it follows then. That this priestly vocabulary of Genesis 2.15, this priestly thinking of Genesis 2.15 is way more than about landscaping and pruning and even way beyond just the exercise of priestly duties, but that the charge of maintaining order makes humanity the participants with God Himself in the never-ending task of maintaining and sustaining this equilibrium which God had established in the cosmos. Ancient Near Eastern culture fleshed out that fact that the priests were partners with the king in creating and completing what was unfinished. Actual participants in preserving that which existed and not just preserving the status quo, but rather in a continual and in a very dynamic and a very even revolutionary process of remodeling and improvement. That's ancient Near Eastern thought. And it's then at that point when we marry up Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 with ancient Near Eastern thought, the word rain, the charge to tend and watch over, it all marries up in this priestly duty God has given humanity. It then follows out that logic that a strictly preservationist mentality would not then be in God's order for his creation, which he asks and tasks us to reign and tend and watch over. Just saying, well, we'd better just build a fence all around it and just let it be, would actually be neglecting the primary, one of the primary duties that God gave humanity all the way back at the beginning of time. Because see, there is this very strong undercurrent that runs throughout the whole of creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in which God himself is establishing the cosmos not just to function as an environment for humanity to live in, humanity which he created, but God established and created the cosmos, watch this, as rather a sanctuary for himself, see. The cosmos as a sanctuary for God himself. Get this. God makes the cosmos. He then puts humanity into it. And then what did God do on the seventh day of the creation? What did he do? He rests. That's exactly right. He rests. Good job. He rests. God sabbaths. And then he goes about setting up the Garden of Eden along the lines of the most holy place of his creation. God isn't just setting up the cosmos with humanity in mind. God's creation is intended to carry out functions related to him. On the seventh day of creation, God had been toiling, what? For the purpose of actually achieving rest, see. And God Sabbathing and God resting on the seventh day, it isn't just a nice bookend to the main event of creation, which we consider to be the creation of humanity but rather the fact remains that God rested on the seventh day and that reveals something about the purpose of God within his creation and within the cosmos. God didn't just create all of this. God didn't just establish the cosmos so that we would have a nice and pretty place to live in. But he establishes the cosmos to exist as his temple. One scholar I was reading this week comments this way. While the creation of people may have indeed been the climax of the six days of work, it's not the conclusion of the creation narrative. Notice that it was the seventh day which was blessed. It was the seventh day which was set apart, which suggests the very high significance of what happens on the seventh day. God rested. God Sabbath. We see very frequently throughout the text the fact that the cosmos is portrayed as a temple complex, if you will. Look at Isaiah 66, 1. It's just one of those places. Look at what God says. Heaven is my throne. It's the words of God. Heaven is my throne. The earth is what? My footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Not a chance. Could you build me such a resting place? No way are the answers. Now, the rest to which God refers to here isn't rest like we often think about rest. We think about rest as in relaxation and hanging out and going to the lake, long three-day weekends, and so on. The type of rest that God refers to is referring more along the lines of His having just achieved equilibrium and stability through the completion of the cosmos. And God's inhabiting of His resting place is on par with him being enthroned. It's connected to his taking up the role of the sovereign ruler of all that he had created, see. God's rest and God's Sabbath is not about him withdrawing from what he had created, withdrawing from the operations of the world which he had created. That's what we think about when we rest and when we Sabbath, we pull away. We step back from normal life and we engage on a different level with God than we normally do. It's not like that. God didn't just say, all righty, my work's done. She's all yours. Good luck with all of that. Like God throwing us the keys to creation and then walking away from it. No way. No way. Instead, God's rest and God's Sabbath represents his taking his place at the helm of the cosmos. That's what rest is to God. Now the cultural mandate for humanity to tend and to watch over God's creation, they're not then just about what Adam was to do solely to provide for himself and his family, as much as they were mandates about what Adam was to do for God, a priest of God. Adam's duty in the Garden of Eden was to maintain it as God's sacred space. It was his incredibly high privilege to serve in what was called a sacred precinct. He was to preserve its holiness. He was to preserve its character. Just as the priests of the Old Testament did first in the tabernacle, that moving tent out in the desert that represented the presence of God where God dwelled with the people. And then in the temple, when it had been built, when God's resting place then had permanent walls to it. And lots of environmentalists today They make much of the discussion of what tending and watching over, they make it about actual issues around working the soil, agricultural issues, working the ground. They suggest that anything we do in creation that isn't for humanity's sake must then be done just for the sake of the earth, just for the sake of the creation. One man said it this way, the significant thing about both commands, tend and watch over, is that they describe actions undertaken not primarily for the sake of the doer, but for the sake of the object of the action. The kind of tilling which is to be done is a service of the earth, he says. The keeping of the garden is not just for human comfort, but is a kind of preservation, he finishes. Now, he certainly does have a point. The actions that humanity are charged with in regard to the creation are not strictly for the sake of the doer. They're not strictly for the sake of us. But instead of seeing them as being carried out for the sake of the garden itself, the planet itself, They're actually being carried out for the sake of the owner and the master of creation, God himself. Humanity then has the immense privilege of serving perpetually in the temple of God himself. And that concept of serving in the temple, it has a lot of resonance in the ancient world, though it's resonance with a twist, if you will. See, in Mesopotamian culture and Mesopotamian accounts, the gods had needs, God's little g had needs that must be met. They especially had a need for food. It was primary to their survival, right? People were therefore called on by the gods little g to meet the gods' food needs. The twist in the book of Genesis, however, is that God, the one true living God, Yahweh, he has and he had no needs whatsoever. Adam's duty in the garden wasn't based on drudgery and that God had tired of doing something for himself. He had finally gotten tired of getting himself his own food. In Mesopotamian tradition, people were created to serve deity, see. The Genesis break with that tradition comes that the Genesis mandate for humanity to serve God. It wasn't a late adjustment. It wasn't a, oh, I forgot that I was going to have to do that, but was rather by divine design from the very beginning of time. The whole drudgery piece, it doesn't enter the scene in Genesis until after the fall, after humanity's expulsion from the Garden of Eden. And so here then is where all of that goes. If people were going to fill the earth, if we were actually going to obey God as he commanded us in Genesis 1, we must then assume that they were not intended to stay in the garden in this static situation. It would not all have fit in the garden, see. Now, that means something. That means that the land outside of the garden must have been much less hospitable than the land inside of the garden, because if it weren't, what would the distinction be between the garden and any other part of the creation? It would appear to have been somewhat of a hardship to have moved out of the garden. I ask the question then, is it possible for us to surmise, watch this, that it was the charge of humanity, the charge of the first human being, Adam, to gradually extend the Garden of Eden as they went about the mandates of reigning and tending and watching over? Was that the charge of Adam? To gradually extend the Garden of Eden? as he tended, as he reigned, as he watched over. Such an extension of the Garden of Eden, see, it would have certainly extended the food supply, which was one of the Garden's explicit purposes, according to God. As well, see, it would have extended God's sacred space, which the Garden was a representation of. It seems then that God's implicit mandate to Adam was to make sure, Adam, you make sure that what's going on inside of this garden complex, you make sure what's going on inside of these borders is going on everywhere else out there. Adam, you're to make sure that you're guiding. You're to make sure, Adam, that you're aiding. Adam, you're to make sure that you're maximizing and increasing the productivity of the planet out there. Outside of the Garden of Eden don't just stay in this space Don't just stay in here as nice and as pleasant and as beautiful as this place is because your charge Adam Is to guard the rest of the planet against degradation because things are only gonna run amok out there? If we just let it go and let it be if you neglect it take what's going on inside of the garden out there Adam It seems very highly unlikely that humankind was to have stayed statically present in the Garden of Eden, especially in light of Genesis 2, 10 to 14. Watch this. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. The first branch, called the Pishon, flowed around the entire land of Havilah where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. The second branch, called the Gihon, flowed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch, called the Tigris, flowed east of the land of Ashur. The fourth branch is called the Euphrates. These verses are intended to indicate just a small sampling of the resources that would eventually be at the disposal of humankind as they gradually worked their way out from the garden. And it's very, very interesting to note that those resources that are mentioned, gold, spices, and precious stones... They found their most common functions in sacred space. See, the tabernacle and the temple utilized most gold, spices, and precious stones and could then be procured for such a purpose as the expansion of God's sacred space continued and continued and continued. Now, you know the story, though. Chapter 2 of the book of Genesis ends with the creation of Eve, the creation of womankind. And Genesis chapter 3 begins with what we traditionally call the fall of humanity. The fall, the entry of sin and brokenness into humanity's relationship with God. It's then and there where we see the royal screwing up, I don't know how else to say it, of the mandate that God gave us inside of the garden to tend And to watch over it. And it doesn't take a genius today to look around and to note. It's very easy to note. That we've neither tended nor watched over the earth very effectively, have we? As a result of sin tainting our relationships, both inward as well as our relationship with creation, it's all fouled by the fall. It was at the fall of humanity where we made the willful decision to refuse, to submit to God. And as such, we were no longer worthy of the creation's unreserved submission, which had been granted to us by God himself. God said in Genesis 3, 17 to 19, these words, The ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. And poof, just like that, humankind's unencumbered reign over the creation was gone. But aren't you glad that that's not the end of the story? Adam, the very first Adam, was created with the knowledge of God. He was created with righteousness and with holiness and with the charge to reign, to have dominion over. But by his disobedience, he lost all of those things. And he didn't just lose them for himself, did he? He lost them for all of the human race who would descend from him. But aren't you glad that's not the end of the story either, is it? God, in His marvelous and beautiful and perfect grace, provided what the text calls a new Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who by His perfect obedience was about restoring everything humanity had lost through the first Adam, not just restoring them for Him, but restoring them for every person who ever lived who will choose to trust in Him. That means then church, We are the church. That God is all about the work of restoring inwardly, restoring us inwardly. That's what discipleship, that's what following Jesus is all about. God's restoration of our relationship with Him inwardly. And while He's also about the business of restoring us inwardly, He's in the business of restoring humankind's outward reign over the creation. God never rescinded His command that we reign. Just because of the fall, God didn't say, no, you're not worthy any longer to reign over my creation. He never rescinded that. It was never revoked. Look at Revelation 1, 5 and 6. Jesus Christ, the ruler of all the kings of the world, who has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us, he has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. We're still in the business of reigning and tending and keeping with God himself. That means that we, church, that means that we who follow Jesus, we should be at the forefront of the environmental conversation. That means that we, the church, should be at the forefront of any resultant action of that conversation, exercising the very same rule, the very same reign, the very same tending, the very same watching over that Adam was called to exercise at the very beginning of time. Adam's mandate is still our mandate today. Just like Adam, we are charged to tend and keep and watch over the garden. Now, it's way more difficult for us than it was for Adam, at least nearer to the beginning because of sin. Look at Romans eight twenty-one to 22. The creation looks forward to the day, the Bible says, when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And those are some serious groans, aren't they? If you've been there, you know that. Right up to the present time, right? Church. The creation has actually been anxiously awaiting its own restoration to wholeness, its own restoration to fullness since the very first curse of the fall started it on its present course. That means then that we, the sons and the daughters of God, we are actually charged with the restoration of the creation sea. It raises a fantastic question. To what extent, then, is it possible for us to restore creation before Christ returns? My answer is a profound one. I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. If anyone says they do, they are not telling you the whole truth. But we do know that it is our mandate from God to be working toward the restoration of the creation. We are to be reigning we're to be tending, we're to be watching over the earth and everything in it then, which raises the question, how in the world are we supposed to get that done? How in the world are we supposed to do that? Which is where I will drive the car up to the edge of the cliff and I will again throw it into park and leave you right there. Because that very question, how in the world are we supposed to be about the restoration of the creation, is where we'll pick up, not next weekend, Next weekend is a very special guest speaker, my friend Jared Roth. He's a friend of mine from Portland. He's my executive coach, has been for about the last nine months. He's the former overseer of almost 2,000. Get that number in your head. 2,000 churches, four-square churches, and almost 5,000 four-square pastors. Jared's going to be here with us next weekend out there under the tent. You won't want to miss that. And so then it's the following weekend, two weekends from now, where I'll get to the question, how in the world are we to be about the restoration of the creation? What does it mean for us to reign and tend and watch over? How do we implement that as we live our lives today? So take your things, if you would, on that note and set them aside. And I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and just speak to the Lord about what's on your heart and mind. And maybe more importantly than you telling God what's on your mind is listening to Him, asking God, what he might have for you. I invite you to do that now. And would you keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for the next few moments? I just want to prompt you with a few thoughts. First, I just want to prompt you to do any business that you need to do with God. God. Maybe you have business to do with God around reigning and tending and watching over. Maybe you've got other business to do with God. Maybe you've got business to do with God related to something heavy that you've been carrying. I invite you just to use this time for that purpose. And maybe as you sit here in this room today, that thought that it is actually your charge to be in the business of the restoration of the creation, that might be a new thought for you. And I would invite you to use this time to think about how you're going to do that. You don't got to wait for me to talk about it in two weeks. You can be about it today. And I invite you to reflect and interact with God on just how you're going to be about restoring God's creation. It's our charge. It's our duty. And maybe you're here today and you know that you don't yet have a personal relationship with the Creator, with the God of the universe. I want you to know it doesn't have to stay that way. God certainly doesn't want it to be that way. See, God loves you. God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to make a way for you to have a relationship with him. Jesus was your sacrifice on the cross. He was the rescuer of your soul. And by you choosing to put your faith and your trust in him, you can begin a friendship, you can begin a relationship with God today, right now even. And if that's you, if that's the decision you're making today, I'd invite you just to express that to God by praying along with me right where you're sitting, a prayer that goes like this. God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to make a way for me to enter into relationship with you. God, I know that I broke the relationship between you and I. And today, God, I realize that you are perfect and that you are holy and that Jesus' death on the cross for my sin makes the way for me to relate to you. God, would you please forgive me by Jesus' sacrifice? Would you please send Jesus to live inside of me, God, because I want you to be my friend and I want you to change me. And God, I need you to clean my life up. And God, starting today, I make you the boss of my life. And if you prayed that prayer with me just then, that's the biggest decision of your whole life. Nothing matters more. Nothing carries more weight. There's not a bigger deal going on on planet Earth than your relationship with God. And it's such a big deal that around here we actually ask people to tell us when they made that decision. And I want you to know that nobody's going to embarrass you. Nobody's looking around this room but me. But if you prayed with me just then, would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and say, yes, I stepped across the line of faith in Jesus today. I made Jesus my Savior today. go, way to go man, right now Jesus is changing you, your whole trajectory of living will not ever be the same, way to go, there be any others I certainly don't want to miss anybody, it's too significant a moment. God, this idea that we're to reign and we're to tend and we're to watch over your creation is weighty, it's challenging. It really is astounding that you invite us to partner with you in such a responsible way. It's way beyond our capacity, certainly. We're way out of our league on this deal. And so that's, God, why we need your help. I pray that for us as a community that our understanding would be grown, our understanding would be deepened for what you mean by that. I pray that you would speak into every one of us regarding our role in the restoration of your creation. That you would speak into our lives about what it means for us to expand your sacred space. help us do that we want to please you we want to obey you we want to trust you we want to follow you with everything in our lives God including our care for the planet this isn't just a small thing this isn't just a hot topic of the day it matters it has long-term repercussions God So give us wisdom and give us truth, your truth, God.